This is chapter 161 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, perennial best-selling author Sandra Brown confesses she's afraid of running out of ideas. Then we pick up the saga of Scotland's Lost Queen with author Sidney Pike. We all know that saying about best laid plans. Well, there's a bit of that plus vengeance, greed, and desire in Thick as Thieves, the 82nd, yes, 82nd book from author Sandra Brown. How does she keep coming up with those ideas? A little bit more on that later. But first, let's start with hearing more about her thriller about a woman's quest to uncover her missing father's role and a heist gone wrong. Well, I like to think that it is a fat, juicy read, (laughs) and it will provide a little bit of escapism from COVID and everything else that is going on. Uh, This is a great time to be reading novels in particular because they do allow us to kind of um, escape and have it another world for a while. And I think that the storyline and the setting of this book will be of particular interest just because it's so different. It it doesn't relate to anything, you know, that is going on in our world right now. So it, it really is escapism. I think anyone who maybe finds themselves in a bookstore and picks this one up and just happens to read through the first couple of pages are going to be automatically hooked with the prologue. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I actually wrote the prologue without having any idea what the rest of the book was going to be. Um, I was just all of a sudden thrust into that scene. I heard the character that wasn't even named. I didn't even know who it was say uh, the surefire way to get caught is talking about it. And um, and I thought, who said that? You know, and who's he talking to? And where is he? And what's going on here? And I just started writing, uh, writing down what I saw and heard and smelled and felt. And um, after about six pages, I ended on that um, uh, by, by daybreak, their plan had been shot to hell. One was in jail, one was in the hospital, one was in the morgue, and one got away with it. And um, I sent it to my editor and said, what do you think? And he said, gosh, I think it's I think it's great. It's very compelling, mysterious. And he said, what happens next? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, I've got 450 pages to figure it out. <laughs> so that's how the the book began for me, too. And, and I felt like if, if I found it that compelling, that the reader would find it that compelling. So I'm, I'm glad you made that point for me. I know we can't talk about it too much without giving a whole lot away. Sketch out what that prologue sets up for folks. Well, it's four thieves, four burglars who have gotten away um, with a pretty sizable amount of money. Um, it represents to them a sizable amount of money. And uh, they've been successful up to that point in the prologue. And um, and then we learned that things did not go as planned. Everything went awry. And then the the uh, storyline opens up 20 years later, and it's kind of a sins will find you out uh, kind of plot in that they who survived are still trying to grapple with the events of that night. And so the challenge for me as the novelist was to keep that backstory uh, as vital and as full of tension as the present day story, because 
the events of that night, as they unfold, they impact what's happening in the present day. So it was really like writing two books in, in one. But as the story goes along, I, I take the reader back to that night and and lead up to, you know, what proved to be catastrophic events that changed all of their lives. The twists in this book definitely don't disappoint. And I came across a big one this morning while I was reading it on the subway. And if anybody was really paying attention to me, I think they would have seen my eyes go big as saucers be like, what? I had no idea. I didn't see that coming. Do you, well, thank you. Do you outline beforehand? Do you, do you just go with the flow? Or is it different for a book like this that you're trying to, you know, keep the details of two separate timelines down? It's a it's a combination actually. Um I I figure out before I start writing, um I start with the terrible trouble, what what the catalytic event is that sets everything into play. And and then I build in uh certain spikes um that I know story structure need, you know, certain twists along the way that you you taken the reader in one direction also, uh-oh, didn't know that. That's a new revelation. So things change, and it propels them further along. Um, so I build in a few of those. I know that my idea wants to be a story when I get that aha, and it's that last twist. It's the one thing that I know that the reader doesn't know. And when I when I get that, then I know I'm ready to start writing because from from the moment I get that, then everything um, in in the book, uh, there's a common thread. It's just that the reader won't know what it is, hopefully, until the very end. And um, so I can play sometimes with an idea and um, it just lies there. You know, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't take on a life of its own. And then other times, you know, I'll be sitting there and I'll be thinking, but I've got this great scene. I've got these great characters. I can hear their dialogue and this scene, this scene. But what's the thing that's causing me to want to write this book? What What's the one thing? And when I get that one thing, then I, I know I've got a story. You've got more than a few books under your belt. Are you ever, <laughs> are you ever worried about running out of ideas? Oh, of course. Uh, I, I worry about it every day. Uh, I worry about going to the keyboard and whatever talent uh, I had or uh, deceived people into thinking that I had has left me overnight, and I will never be able to write another word. So uh, for me, it's a daily struggle um, to convince myself, I know how to do this. I've done it, uh, well, in the case of um, Thickest Thieves, 82 times. And um, so I look at the bookshelf, I guess, for reassurance, but it's also a source of frustration because I'll sit there and go, I know how to do this. I've done it this many times. I've had this many books published. Why can't I get this right? And so it's a it's a daily struggle. But I also feel like that fear is a is a healthy thing. I think it's a, a good motivator. Um, it, it keeps me on my toes. It keeps me wanting to improve and get better and, and maintain um, whatever quality and trademarks that you know my readers, my readers attribute to me. I think one of the things that readers come to expect from you are 
these really atmospheric settings. And, and you've said that they almost you, you treat them as a character mm-hmm. in your books. This one is no exception. What drew you to this, you know, swampy, wet part right. of Texas? Well, when I when I started on that prologue, you know, I described it as being very humid and and, and but I still didn't know I hadn't chosen um, a setting yet. And the more I got into the story and in my own head, not writing it down, but thinking about it, I thought, hmm, Caddo Lake would be perfect for this. Um, it's way over on the, the eastern um, side of Texas and so has all of the, um, you know, the, the um, geography of East Texas, which is very piney forest and uh, not like a lot of the rest of Texas, and it um, is on the state line with Louisiana, the the state line bisects the leg, and it's just so um, redolent with um, folklore, with legends, with uh, this aura, you know, of mystery and intrigue, and the way I described it in the book with all the channels, and, uh, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you can get lost very quickly. You can also lose someone very quickly, <laughs> and so I thought, if you really wanted to know where the body is buried, <laughs> you know, you might try drag- dragging the lake, and so uh, it was perfect for the story, um, but you're indeed right. I, I do try to to make the setting another character and particularly in Thick as Thieves, um, it plays such a key role in the plot. Um, so um, I, I thought it was perfect setting for this particular story. And it's got to be a lot of fun, too, to uh, be able to use alligators to help dispatch of <laughs> <laughs> right. an errant body. <laughs> so, Sandra, what's next? Well, I'm working on uh, an idea, playing with it. I'm in that plotting stage, you know, where where I'm trying to figure out that one thing. Um, It will be um, a Sandra Brown book. Uh, I think it will have um, all the trademarks and the the surprise. But it's going to be a little bit different because I'm not going to write uh, anything uh, about COVID. Uh, I think we're all saturated <laughs> with that. Nobody wants to to read about that. And so it's going to be a little bit of a departure. Um, my colleagues and I have, you know, with whom I'm in touch frequently, and we're all saying, what are we going to do with this? You know, how do you, how do you write a book where you can't see anyone's face? And, you know, and so I think we're all kind of over that, and we're all venturing out a little bit. Um, and so for me, it will be I think a fun and welcome change. I'm I'm not willing to talk about yet what it's about, but I'll tell you what it's not about. <laughs> and it's not about all the challenges that are facing us right now. Well, I know I for one look forward to escaping what we're the reality that we're living as often as I can get. So right. a, a book that takes me away from that is always a welcome change. Uh, I agree with you 100%. And if people want to do that, they should pick up Thick as Thieves because I think they will be totally absorbed in it. And like I said, thank you. The payoff at the end is totally worth it. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm glad I took you by surprise. Most of us are familiar with the legend of King Arthur, but would you be surprised to learn that his advisor and mythical wizard Merlin is based on a real life character? 
And what if I told you that Merlin had a twin sister named Langareth, who was a real queen of Scotland? Well, she would have just been another woman lost to history if author Sidney Pike hadn't uncovered her and introduced her to the world in her novel, The Lost Queen. Langareth's story continues in The Forgotten Kingdom, the second book in her trilogy. She tells us where the story picks up. Book one ends on a bit of a cliffhanger with this battle of Arterith, which was a historical battle that happened in 573 AD. And it's been largely forgotten to history, but it was basically a battle in which Langorith, who was a real 6th century historical queen, had to um, watch her brother go off to war against her own husband. And so book two, The Forgotten Kingdom, the prologue is the aftermath in the aftermath of that battle. And then the book flashes back to before the battle. And then um, from there, the story casts the characters to the winds and they travel the length and breadth of Scotland, each finding their own destiny. For those people who aren't familiar with your first book or the trilogy itself, it focuses on characters that they actually think they know, which is Merlin and the legend of King Arthur. And Langorith, who you just mentioned, happens to be Merlin's twin sister. Yes, we think so. You know, she was actually a historical figure. And when I stumbled across Langorith, um, I was in a little bookstore in Glastonbury, England, and came across her in a book I pulled off the shelf. And I thought it was really fascinating that although she is, as far as we can see, Langorith is a historical figure, her brother has been entirely fictionalized. Um, And she herself, although she was married to a historical king, and we even know children who are descended from their union, she herself was even lost to time. And so my mission has been to uncover Langora through the events that we know happened during her lifetime, um, which gives me plenty of meat for these books. Why is it that she has been lost? Is it just the fact that she was a woman? You know, by and large, it was that she was a woman. Certainly in that time period, history was an oral tradition and history started to, you know, started to become written down by monks in the centuries after she passed. And she and her brother had made some very powerful enemies in the Christian church. So she was um, labeled an adulteress in the one story that we do have of her. She's remembered for her adultery with with a young soldier against her husband, the king. And of course, we know now that that's a really common tactic um, when men in power are seeking to discredit a woman. Um, It goes back to Mary Magdalene. You know, she's labeled a whore. She's labeled an adulteress. And so she was discredited in that way. And her name just got swept under the rug um, as as the centuries moved by. It's really crazy to think that more than a millennia later, the game book is still the same. It is. And that's what's so interesting about writing this, this series is that um, although the languages were different and technology was different, the human stories are so similar. And um, the level of political machinations, it doesn't change. Censorship doesn't change. All of those things are things that we're still struggling with today with our Me Too movement and our civil rights, you know, huge civil rights moment that we're having right now in history. Um, those were the sorts of things that were happening during Langora's time as well. And I think it's interesting to see how the one thing that's in common in all those stories is the human quest for power. 
you've done an immense amount of research to bring this story to life, what it was like to live in all those times ago, what the people were like, what the language was like. Has it been mostly rewarding to do that or frustrating? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I would say equal parts. I love the research. Um, I get really lost in it. And it's just like this never ending rabbit hole for me. Um, But where it's frustrating is that there really hasn't been a lot of attention focused on the early medieval or the early historic time period, which is the fifth and sixth century in Scotland. It doesn't leave a big archaeological fingerprint in the landscape because um, houses are mostly made of timber. And so we have a very hard time reconstructing these sites themselves. and, And it's amazing to me how little is actually known. Um, about whether or not certain buildings had glass windows. And it's, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Um, I think now in recent years, new sites have been uncovered with these droughts that we've had, and we've seen more um, imprints in the landscape. Um, so there's been a little bit more interest in this specific time period as new halls have been discovered and new sites. But I think it's, hopefully these books will help shine a light on that so we can start to learn more about the, the Britons that were living in 6th century Scotland. Now, you mentioned you came across Langworth's name in a book you, you picked off a, a shelf, but have you always been interested in this time period and in Scotland during this time? You know, I wasn't particularly. I was always interested in the world of castles. And um, when I first went to Scotland and England, some of the things that really struck me were the standing stones. And those are Neolithic. You know, those go back thousands of years before even Langora's time. Um, but what really struck me and what really what really spurred the research was her and learning about her specifically and learning about events like the Battle of Arteris. I think I was touched by her story and what it must have been like to have experienced the events in her lifetime that she did. And I felt this extreme level of sadness that Um, she could have lived through such traumatic times and was one of the most powerful women in that area of Scotland in, in the sixth century and that no one even knew her name anymore. It was just to me, a travesty. And um, so that's really what drove me to start researching sixth century was, was her. In reading this book during this year and everything we've been going through in 2020, I was struck by the fact that, We really do have it easy compared to what these people had to live through and the wars that were constantly raging around them and everything else that went along with that. I don't know. I suppose I see more parallels than than some might with, you know, we we think about how in the sixth century, most boys, by the time they were 15 or 16, were expected to fight um, at the side of their father or and their cousins and brothers. Um, And martial warfare was really a skill that was um, a skill reserved for noblemen, even as they were in the sixth century, more of a, a tribal clan society. But um, certainly the nobles were, were incredible martial warriors. And, um, but if you look at it today, you know, I have a five-year-old who goes off to school coming home telling me about how he has to, you know, he did an active shooter drill and he has to be really quiet in the bathroom so the man with the gun doesn't come in. I think that, you know, we still are um, asking our sons and daughters 
to grow up too quickly. <laughs> Even 1,500 years later, um, they're having to arm themselves in a whole different and maybe even more terrifying way than a boy who at least could learn how to, you know, wield a sword and was out there and had an expectation of what, what battle might involve. You know, we've got our kindergartners going off and hiding in bathrooms from gunmen. So it's, to me, I still see the parallels and it's, it's heartbreaking sometimes to be a historian. Now I see it in a whole new light as well. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, these stories, as you've been telling us, are about real people, are about real events. And yet the book itself is classified as historical fantasy rather than historical fiction. And you write in your author's notes that that's because that you think you include the old ways, the old beliefs that these ancient people had. What do you say to that? Yeah, you know, I'm really fortunate in that my book editor, um, edits a lot of historical fiction. And one of her authors she works with is Philippa Gregory, who I admire so much. And um, so I'm really lucky in that the books are actually classified as historical fiction, which is great because most books like mine are slotted into the realm of historical fantasy. And it's because most books that involve Arthur and Merlin talk about Merlin, the man who was a wizard, and he shot magic from his fingertips. And of course, my books are trying to show um, the real historical figures who I think inspired the legend. And so I think it's a common misconception. I definitely think that because you write, because I'm writing about pre-Christian religion, um, that's often seen as fantastical and, and, you know, relegated to the world of fantasy, whereas people are so much more familiar with Christian thought that other authors can write about a Christian saying a prayer. And if that character believes their prayer brought about some sort of change, the book can still be considered and classified as historical fiction. So it's just something that I, that I want to bring to readers' minds as they're reading this book. You know, I've had to reconstruct a lot of the pre-Christian religion because the Celts were an oral society and they, they did this on purpose because they wanted to protect their beliefs and their, their knowledge. So a lot's been hidden, a lot's been forgotten, but I've done a lot of comparative religion research and um, there are still pieces and bits that have come through the ages written down in various texts. And we've got this course, the stories of the Celts and all the legends. So all of that's what I've used to reconstruct their beliefs. And so it's, it's as historical as you could possibly get in that way. Have you learned anything about yourself in the undertaking of these books? I've learned that I can do hard things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I first started even thinking about writing The Lost Queen, which was more than six years ago, I guess, it took me six six years to write it. I had been a former book editor and had written a memoir. So I was um, a nonfiction author. And I also, as an editor, had um, helped a lot of nonfiction writers attempt to write fiction and I had seen what a grueling task it was. And I had seen how, no matter how badly some of these authors and these writers wanted to attempt it, um, a lot of times they just didn't, they weren't able to make the transition. So I was terrified. And it was a real big learning curve for me. Book two, in some ways, was a lot more freeing because although I felt with um, The Lost Queen, that was Lingora's story. And so it needed to be told exclusively from her perspective. But in book two, I felt 
really drawn to some of the other characters we've met, like Lilakin, her brother, and Anharad, her daughter. And so um, one thing I learned is that I have to just let the story come through me rather than trying to control it or bend it to my will, because that's when things get stuck um, and, you, and you find yourself blocked. At least I do. Um, so I just had to learn how to trust my own instincts and then just as far as doing hard things, the sheer amount of butt and chair that it requires to write a 600 page book, um, especially during life events and the pandemic and having my son at home and being a single mother and all of those things. This was one of the most painful, grueling processes. We crashed this book into fall because it took me so long to write it. So it was grueling. And there was this moment where I was sitting in my chair at two or three in the morning, having to write when my son was asleep and he would be up at six. And um, I was just weeping. (laughs) So I literally blood, sweat and tears into this novel. But I'm so proud of what has come out. I think people who've read The Lost Queen will definitely read this and think it was worth the wait and all your hard work paid off. Well, that is lovely of you to say. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Can you give us so. a hint to what the, the third and final book of this trilogy uh, might be called, might contain? Well, you know, we know some of the historical events that took place. Um, and so I have, a, I have an idea of the shape of it. But there's also a lot of um, research that I still want to do on the ground. I go to all the historical sites that I can. It really helps me to write about them. And also in Scotland, a lot of these places you have to visit because you can't find the information online that you're looking for. A lot of these sites have regional museums that have artifacts from those sites. So there are places that I still want to go visit. Um, and perhaps a change in leadership in our country would allow me the opportunity to get back over to Scotland, which is what I'm hoping, um, because I was not able to go on my trip this August that I was scheduled to go on um, to research Book Tree. But yeah, there's a lot more sites that I have to research. And and the other thing is that, you know, as we're exploring developing the television show based on the books, I'm not sure that um, I can wrap everything up in, in one more installment. Um, so there could potentially be a continuation and I'm even thinking about maybe a prequel. Oh, I love to hear that. And I was going to ask, you know, it, it seems, you know, people devour these kinds of stories. If there was any, anything in the works for a TV or, or film and you just made me smile when I heard you say that. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. Um, I think Lingoris somehow out there in the ether had something to do with this because, um, Right when I was going on book tour for The Lost Queen, I, I got some interest from um, Hollywood and people in the TV realm and um, ended up signing an option with Bruna Papandrea, who is this amazing, amazing female television, television producer who runs a company called Made Up Stories. And the whole mission of her company is to highlight stories told by women and to employ women in telling those stories in other formats. And she also um, is um, responsible for the show Big Little Lies. And she does a ton of, she works with a ton of authors to bring their stories to film and television. So she was sort of the perfect person. And as we were talking, she was telling me that she really connected to the story because not only, um, was she a twin? She also had twins. Of course, Langoreth and Lalikin are twins. 
Um, so it just seemed, it seemed really faded and she's been phenomenal and we're working on developing a pilot um, script right now, which has been really exciting. So hopefully there'll be more news to come on that, but it's been a really, a really exciting and um, fulfilling opportunity because I feel like she's exactly the right person to, to handle Lingora's story. And that will make all that weeping at 6am worth it. Yes, I sure hope so. Although a lot is going to make things, it'll make it a lot more difficult to find the time to write, which is why um, for book three, I've asked my publisher for two full years to write it, which means that it won't go on sale until September of 2023. And it's interesting, a lot of readers, I try not to read reviews, but a lot of, uh, I'll skim Goodreads and just check in and see how things are are striking people. And one of the things a lot of people say is like, I, you know, I hate reading a trilogy unless every, every single book has been published because <laughs> they hate the weight. And I understand it. But at the same time, you know, I think that um, it was, how long was it? I don't know. I think my readers waited 10 years from the time I published fairy tale, my memoir. Um, I had some people waiting um, for the lost queen and it really just goes to show that, you know, stories take time and, I give my readers a lot of credit. I think that they they're willing to wait and there's plenty of other beautiful books for them to read in the meantime. So I got to read uh, my mom read The Lost Queen first. And when you're when the Forgotten Kingdom landed in my mailbox, I recognized your name on the cover. And I said, didn't you read this book? And she happened to read it when we were in Scotland last year and she still had it around. So I got to read book one and the book two back to back. So now I have to give her book two. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I love it. I love stories passed around. Um, that's one of my favorite way to get book recommendations, too. I always make sure my books get good homes. That, that's my always. That's one of my goals of this podcast is when I'm done with yeah. them, they move on to a good home. <laughs> Yeah, you can't possibly keep them all. That's the problem, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm running out of room in the office and at home. <laughs> yes, exactly. We've been speaking with Signe Pike. The second book in her Lost Queen trilogy is The Forgotten Kingdom. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your passion with us, and I hope everyone can get just as excited about it. Oh, thanks, Lisa. It was a pleasure to be here. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we get a dire warning from the future about what's in store if we don't do anything about climate change. Let me tell you, if you aren't already worried about where we're headed, this book probably will change your mind. Until then, do your part and also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 80 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.